kingdom of God. Again, in the book of Mark, we see contrasts here that Mark establishes for us that are somewhat overwhelming and amazing. And in the lesson of contrasts, we find where we should be standing. Let's ask the Lord to bless the Word. Father, would You bless this Word and in every attempt I make, Lord, would Your Holy Spirit fill in every gap that we may hear from You, Lord Jesus, and know Your Word and be challenged. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 6, verse 1, He went away from there and came to His hometown. And uh, so you you see, we have a shift now, uh, a new chapter, a new point of what He's going to tell us. So He went away from where we were last week now to His hometown. This is home. And His disciples followed Him. And on the Sabbath He began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard Him were astonished, saying... Where did this man get these ideas, these things from? What is the wisdom given to him? How are much mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. This is not marveling and astonishing at how great Jesus is. This is marveling and astonishing at who does he think he is? It's Jesus. We know this guy. We've seen him grow up here. Who does he think he is coming off like that? And so they marveled at who they thought he thought he was. I'll repeat that. They marveled at who they thought he thought he was. Where does he get off saying this? And then what they do now, which is interesting here, is they set him, they set him in an identity that they know him as. All right? Now, we have to break the molds and idols of the Jesuses that have been established by men, established by tradition. There is a Jesus that nobody understands. When we see him, we will marvel at his glory and his majesty. And he's not going to look like some white guy. He's not going to look like a black guy. He may not even look like a Jewish guy. He's going to look like the Son of God in all his glory. We want to conform him to our image. And there is a Jesus who will not be conformed to any man's image. So if you think you've got Jesus down pat, you're up for a rude awakening. As John, the beloved who loved Jesus and rested his head on his shoulders at the Last Supper. When he saw Jesus uh, in his full glory on the Isle of Patmos, he fell on his face as if dead. The only way he could describe him was beyond human terms. Like his mouth was a sword, and his eyes were like fire, and his voice was like uh, waterfalls rumbling and his feet and skin was like burning bronze. He had to go outside the realm of human understanding. And those are assemblies that's like this and like that, but it ain't that. Do you see what I'm saying? And so that what they did to make him conform to their understanding of who does he think he is? Hey, he's a carpenter. Now, just as an aside, that word carpenter in the Greek is tekton, and it means craftsman. 
Through history, we've ascribed to him woodworking. He made ladders and yokes and this and that, but that doesn't mean he was a wood carpenter. In fact, in most probability, he was a stonemason. And you listen to a lot of the speech and the talk, Christ is the stone that builders rejected. No foundation laid can be laid other than that of Jesus. Jesus would give parables. As a wise man builds his house upon a rock, he's called the rock of offense. Uh, in Nazareth, there wasn't a lot of wooden buildings. So he quite possibly could have been a stonemason. Maybe he was a carpenter and built doors and yokes and ladders. Could be, but what we see is he's a craftsman. So they say, hey, isn't this Jesus the craftsman? And then they identify him with his family. His mother, his brothers, and they say even his sisters are here. Now we discussed this earlier on in our study to know that Jesus, uh, Mary and Joseph had children. Joseph must have died because there's no reference here to his father at this point. So while Jesus is 30 years old, uh, it's obvious that Joseph must have passed by then. Could be that Mary had children, uh, additional children, by Joseph's brother who may have taken her on. We don't know. But we know Jesus had half-brothers and sisters. We know his father is God, right? So they identify him according to his family and they take offense at Jesus. Why do you think you keep trying to make Jesus appealing to everybody? We want everybody to like Jesus because we love him. And we would expect everybody to love him, but there are many people who hate him. And that's going to be the result of your testimony. You may give a testimony of who he is, and people may hate him for it. You need to move on. All right? And, and, and we're all worried about everybody liking Jesus. Give the testimony and move on. Because there are going to be a group that isn't going to like him. In fact, the majority of people don't like Jesus. At the day of Pentecost, 3,000 got saved. Isn't that good? While 100,000 didn't. Okay? So they reduce him to who he is and they take offense at his testimony. Listen to what Jesus said. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives, and get this, he says, and in his own household. If you'll remember in our study a a number of months back, we saw that even his brother James and Judas did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They mocked him, they ridiculed him. Jesus is identifying it here. He says, can a guy get a break? I'm not accepted in my own hometown not accepted by my relatives here. I'm not even accepted in my own household. My brothers and sisters don't even believe or know who I am. So what did Jesus do? Moved on. He moved on. But before he did, it's interesting to see what what happened to Jesus. It says in verse 5, and he could do No mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Have you ever seen Jesus astonished? If there's anything, Jesus was astonished, absolutely stunned. He was stunned by their lack of belief. you got two group of people here that are stunned with each other. One group says, who who does he think he is? And Jesus is stunned like, you don't get who I am? 
got a standoff here. Now, he marvels. I've, I've always wondered, what would Jesus marvel at? Would he marvel at a beautiful sunset? He made it. Would he marvel at all, anything in nature? He made it. What's he going to marvel at? Would he marvel at what God can do? He's God. He does it. What he marvels at is the blindness and the faithlessness of men. He's stunned by that. He's absolutely stunned. I believe he's stunned sometimes, astonished and marveled at where his people are, where his church is. Remember, didn't he keep saying this to his disciples? Oy vey, you of little faith. How long do I have to be here and put up with you? That's his disciples he's talking about. Astonished. Now, it goes on and says, because of this faithlessness, this absolute lack of faith and understanding of who he is, it says he could do no mighty works. Now, what does that mean, that he could do no mighty works? We need to consider what that means. Why could he not do any works there? There's been a lot of interpretations and understanding. One is because the faith atmosphere was so low, God couldn't work. Well, there's a problem with that. Then the sovereignty of God is conditioned by the faith element of men. I have a problem with that. I'm, I'm sorry. There's a lot of people Jesus healed who were not believers. If he had to wait to act and move based on our faith, we've got a problem here. But it is linked to the lack of faith. Is it that he was handcuffed in the sense that he couldn't do anything because it wouldn't be accepted? Does Jesus perform miracles based on our faith? What caused Jesus to move and to act in the miraculous? His Father. If you'll remember, he said, the works I do are not my own. They are what I see my Father doing. Jesus did not act or speak apart from the Father. So if Jesus could do no mighty works in that town, who limited Jesus from doing any works? The Father. The Father said, forget about it. You don't accept my Son, you don't accept me. That's a condition. And so, yes, it was a lack of faith, but it didn't cripple Jesus at all. In fact, he was healing the sick, his compassion pouring out, but it was not the mighty works. There could have been, consider this, there could have been mighty works in Nazareth that day. Oh my, I wonder, I wonder sometimes what could have been. Do you remember when he approached Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. You would not respond. They shut down the image of the invisible God. They shut down the testimony of God, who is Jesus Christ. They shut down the word of God in their midst. Matthew says it is worse for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment. For they rejected their own beloved son. Now this is a picture of Israel. Who rejected Christ himself. And Jesus could do no mighty works in that town. And I believe it's because the Father did none. And so Christ could not do a work there. He didn't see the Father working. 
In fact, what he saw was the father saying, move on, move on, move on. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Amen? And so Jesus moved on. And so here we see the contrast of a city, of a people who who deny Christ and who he is, and God will not and does not work with them, and they move on, and then we see Jesus sending out the twelve. A contrast now, so let's continue. It says this in verse 7, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff and bread, no bag, no bread, no money, no belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, there's a contrast, isn't there? In this contrast, we see that the twelve are now going out and they are having authority and power to heal the sick and cast out demons and to proclaim the kingdom of God. As they're proclaiming it, oh, I already covered that. He goes on, as they're proclaiming it, he gave them authority and he charged them. Now, I want to stop here and consider something for a minute. This is, in fact, no different than the charge that you and I have as his disciples. Would you turn to Matthew 10 with me, considering the same account? In Matthew 10, we have a fuller version of what he said to them. And in this, you will not only see that he's sending out the twelve, but it is in fact a portion of the Great Commission and expands further than just that event. Let, Let me read it to you. He says, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town to the Samaritans. So he's limiting the scope of their evangelism to only Israel. Okay? Now we know the greater the Great Commission's to all nations. But at this point, He is telling them just to go to the house of Israel. He says, just to gather the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what are they declaring? The kingdom. Let me get everybody involved here. What are they to declare? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. They're to go to the house of Israel, saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons... And you received without paying, or freely you have been given, so freely give. Now, so if they're to pronounce the kingdom of God is at hand, in a Jewish mind, you preachy, you showy. Okay? So if you're going to preach the kingdom of God is here, it must manifest. You must demonstrate it. Don't give me lip service. Don't give me your words. And, and what has happened to the church? What have we absolutely been reduced to? 
words. That is not what Jesus sent them out to do. He said, you are to proclaim the kingdom and then make it show up. Am I I reading into this something? Am I correct? He says, proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now he gives verbs. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. We're the church of the nouns. Because we've lost our verbs. That's all we are. Rhetoric. That's how we're winning. Thank God for the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit changing people's hearts, we would be just another group of people gathering. But what his point of the kingdom of God is, now please understand this, that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying, I want you to go, and when you go, you will prove what you're declaring by what you do. Will someone join me in prayer and ask Jesus to restore that in his church? Amen? And I want to show you where we lost that. Now, let me just finish my point. He'll say, go town to town, wherever you go, enter a house, right? And his, you know, brush off the dust and all this. Now, and he says that if they don't listen, verse 15, tell them it will be more bearable on the day of judgment in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Then he goes on and he proclaims how persecution is going to come. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. You need to beware of men. They'll deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. They'll drag you before governors and kings for my sake. That didn't happen at this point. But he's prophesying, he's declaring through the Great Commission what is going to come. You see, he's expanding on it. So his commission is to preach the kingdom and bring manifestation of that kingdom. And then he goes on and he declares there'll be persecution, they'll come against you, you'll be hauled before kings, you'll be this and this and that. And he he extrapolates on well beyond the scope of that time of witnessing to Israel. So you can read the rest of Matthew 10 and see that it actually applies to us 2,000 years beyond this great commission as to what we're going to experience when we bring the kingdom. So if we're going to experience that, as he prophesied, we should be experiencing what he commissioned them with. We should be laying hands on the sick, they should be healing, we should be casting out demons, and so forth. Are you with me in in the logic of this? Okay. I want to share with you a verse this morning to help us understand and it comes I asked the question he gave them authority he gave them authority what did Jesus do what did Jesus do remember in our study of following a rabbi it is the student of the rabbi's understanding that he will follow the rabbi for three years so that he will be what he will become what the rabbi is This is the Jewish mindset. The 12 apostles had this understanding, apart from Judas, this understanding that they were going to become what Jesus is demonstrating now. That was their mindset. That's what a student of a rabbi does. They're supposed to, that's why they're in training from that rabbi. 
they're taking that rabbi's position in place. All right? You with me? I keep asking you that because I need you with me. Okay? I need you to get this. So, so that's their expectation. Now, Jesus said he gave them authority to go do this. What did he do? Well, I'm sure he had little fairy dust in his pocket. And he went, and it came on them, and boom, glory to God. Sing. They could now cast out demons and heal the sick. What did he do? What did he do? Doesn't say he laid hands on him. He doesn't say, he, you know, did he impart? In fact, he, he doesn't blow the Holy Spirit on him till what? John 21, right? And then after that, Pentecost. What did he do? What did he do? He gave his authority, and they had to act and do what they saw him do. Right? He said, I am giving you authority. I am commissioning you to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now go heal the sick. Guess what they had to do? Well, let's see if this works. I don't know. They had to see if it worked. But were they that way, or did they have the sense that he did it, we can do it? You see, there's something in the mechanic of this. There's something in this verse. There's something between Jesus saying go and them doing it. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's nothing in the Bible that tells us anything. But in real life, there's something there. You know the struggle. I know the struggle. Because we got the same commission. And I lay hands on the sick and we do this. Now look at. I want to show something to you. What Jude says. Jude 3 says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith that was delivered to the saints. All right? So what Jude is saying is there was a faith that was passed from Jesus unto the apostles, unto the apostles' students and disciples, and unto us. There is a faith that was passed down. But as Jude is writing this, I want to show you what's happened compared to the church today as to what Jude meant. When we say to contend for the faith, we go to our creeds and doctrines. We say we believe the Trinity, three persons in one of the same nature and substance, but yet three distinct persons. We go to the doctrine of salvation. You have to do this, 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 and this. We go to the doctrines of Jesus. They pass down the teachings and doctrines. We follow the apostles' doctrine, right? It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a faith. Now, how did Jesus say the faith would manifest when they went into the villages? Cast out demons, heal every sickness, right? Cleanse lepers. The faith he's talking, the Bible wasn't written here. The New Testament's not written. When Jude says, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, the New Testament canon wasn't written. So he's not talking about the New Testament and the doctrines of Paul and the doctrines of Peter. What faith was passed down? Person to person. A trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. A faith to believe the kingdom of God is here and it manifests in our presence. We have to contend for that faith. And I think we've lost it. It's not our doctrines and our creeds. Doctrines and creeds are very important. 
We do follow the apostles' doctrines. We do understand the teachings. And because of uh, false doctrines, we had to establish true doctrines. I'm not minimizing them. But unfortunately, we've jumped in that realm of doctrine opposing what true faith is. Jewish faith, Hebraic faith, is a demonstration of God. It's not a talking. It's a doing. We've lost this. God help us in these last days to find it. I'm reading a book right now by a man named Edwin Hatch. It was written in 1897. And the book's called The Influence of Greek Ideas and Usages Upon the Christian Church. The premise of this book is this. How did we get from the Sermon on the Mount, which is an ethical declaration of how Christians are to act and live and manifest, How did we get from the Sermon on the Mount in 300 short years to the Nicene Creed? There was a major shift in the church from doing to believing. From doing to stating. Christianity is now just what we state we believe. But that is not the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount expects you to believe and understand the law. That's a given. The Sermon on the Mount is, you will do this, you will behave like that, you will say this, and you will minister that. And the Nicene Creed is a list of things we cognitively reason to believe. Again, thank God for the Nicene Creed. Don't misunderstand me. Do not throw the creeds out. People shed their blood over these creeds. They are holy. I believe them. I trust them. I study them. I read them. We need the creeds. But something took away the power of the creeds from within our lives. We've stopped living the Sermon on the Mount and memorized our creeds. Where's the power of the Holy Spirit? I fear and I shudder for the church today, for many of these churches. What's happened to the Pentecostal churches? They don't even preach the move of the Holy Spirit. They don't even allow the move of the Holy Spirit. Half the people that attend don't even know what the Holy Spirit is. These are Pentecostal churches who can't take the time to allow the Holy Spirit to heal someone at the altar. I'd rather have the Holy Spirit heal someone than have them spend 10 hours with me. Amen. We need to get the faith back into what was delivered to the saints. And he says this, Edwin Hatch, he says, In investigating this problem, the first point that is obvious to the inquirer is that the change in the center of gravity from conduct to belief is coincident with the transference of Christianity from a Jewish soil to a Greek soil. Greek philosophy invaded the church. And Greek philosophy has altered the way the church behaves into a philosophical mindset from a doing and performing the kingdom of God. God help us from that. Amen? Now, so Jude says... I want to contend for the faith. The faith. We can find the nucleus of that faith right in this commission. 
When Jesus said, you're to preach the kingdom, I now give you authority to do that. So what is it? Go heal the sick, go cleanse the lepers, go cast out demons. Hebrews 12.1, I'm, I'm sure many of you know this verse. Hebrews 12.1 says this, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our what? Faith. Hebrews 11 is all about faith in Messiah. The book of Hebrews is speaking to the Jews to have faith in Messiah. Hebrews 11 is all about the heroes of the faith, from Abraham to Noah to Gideon to Samson to Isaiah to all of them, right? It's all about faith. And then he goes, therefore, since it's all about faith, I want you to run the race. You're surrounded by people who have passed on a faith that was tangible, that was of substance. Remember how he defined it? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The what? Evidence. Say it again. The what? Evidence. The what? Evidence. Evidence shows up. Evidence remains. Evidence is palpable. Evidence is real. Evidence is uh, uh, specific to a people of what they can't see. The lost can't see Jesus, but I just showed them evidence and substance of Jesus. Not an opinion and not simply a discussion. Are you with me on this? This is the faith. This is what he's passing on. This is what he's saying. We have a great cloud of witnesses that is the faith they're passing on, the the substance of a reality of heaven in the earth. And he said, so lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. And I used to think that was your particular personal sin, but there is one sin that enslaves so easily all of us. Do you know what that one sin is? A lack of faith. There's one sin that entangles every runner in this race so easily. We quit too soon. We don't trust Him and we don't believe. Pastor, I prayed for the sick and they didn't get healed. Therefore, I must conclude. The only thing you need to conclude is pray for someone else next time. If you witness to someone and they don't get saved, are you going to stop witnessing to people? So contend for this faith. Keep pressing in. Keep pressing in. Keep pressing in. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, from my heart, I believe this. I might as well stop preaching. I believe that there is a breakthrough coming for all of us. I believe there's a season coming. I believe that the church is on the heels if we will press through that we're going to see the faith that was once handed down from Jesus to his disciples manifest once again in these days. I'm believing for it. I'm trusting for it. I have faith for it. You see, this is the whole topic. Look to Jesus, the author or the trailblazer and the perfecter or the completer of our faith. All faith comes from Christ. In fact, Look at Romans 12.3. According as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. 
Your translation might say a measure of faith. The actual correct rendering is the measure of faith. God has given every believer a measure of faith. You couldn't have come to Christ unless God gave you that measure of faith. Now all of us have been given a measure of faith. What measure do you think it is? How much did Jesus measure out for his disciples when he said, I want you to go? He had a little bottle and teaspoon. He said, so open up, swallow, you get a measure, you get a measure, you just drink out of the bottle. You need a lot. There is the measure. In other words, there is enough faith given to us by Jesus to get us saved Therefore, there is enough faith to heal the sick, cleanse the leopards, and cast out demons, and do whatever other exploits that need to be done by the kingdom of God. We're waiting for us to get more faith. i got to have more faith when I am telling you God has already given you faith. You already have faith. You're waiting for the Holy Spirit to move on you more. You have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I don't care if you're a Pentecostal, Methodist, Baptist, uh, Episcopalian. If you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And if you are saved, you have a measure of faith given to you so that you will do greater things than Christ has done. Hmm. But we don't look at it that way. We look at it at the Greek way. We look at it at the way that I didn't get enough. I haven't learned enough. I haven't trusted enough. It's up to me. It's up to me. It's up to me. Let me show you some more verses. First Peter says this, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of the Son of God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He says to everybody that believes has a like precious faith. That means an equal value of faith. Peter expects that what happened to him will happen to you. You get the same faith. What what do you think, it watered down after 2,000 years? That faith just ain't working. Well, many churches do. They're called cessationists. They believe that it stopped. That kind of faith was for the apostles. We don't have that kind of faith. You don't think this world needs that kind of faith, kind of church today? You don't think that this this world needs what the apostles had? Are, Are there sick among us in the world today? Are there diseases that are rampant and taking over people's lives? I'm sorry, is there poverty? Is there sex sex trafficking? Is there such a a realm of sin that this world doesn't need the kind of power that the disciples and the apostles needed? Who are you kidding? But we've put it into a Greek mindset and say, just read your Bible and read a verse to them. Well, the verses have power and the Bible has power. And what Jesus wants is you to expect that power to show up. You have a like faith. He goes on, Galatians 2.20. Paul said it too. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. That's interesting. Some translations say, I live by the faith in the Son of God. But the Greek rendering is, I live by the faith of the Son of God. The faith you have is Christ's faith. The disciples saw Jesus do these things. They thought they could do them because Jesus said, I want you to. Did Jesus tell us to do these things? 
Hello. Did he? Yes, he did. And so it is by his, his faith we are to be performing these things. Faith of the Son of God, not just in the Son of God. You see, what we do is we pray. God's done something in me. I've changed. You may not like this, but I've changed my prayer life, and it is effective, affecting me very powerfully, and I, I tested it out in the laboratories of prayer. I'm going to put it out there, so I'm sure there'll be some criticism about it, but, but it, it, it's impacted me. I no longer pray, Father, will you heal them? Lord, do you want them healed? Jesus, I pray in your name that you would heal them. I now pray, I want you healed. I want you healed. I command you healed. That sounds rather arrogant, doesn't it? Who are you to say that? And is it in the will of the Father? Well, first I have to make sure I'm in the will of the Father. When I know I'm in the will of the Father, I need to own this thing. I need to own it. Instead of stand off as a third party and say, I pray for the sick. I pray you will heal them, Jesus. There's no in connection and will in my part in this. But what did he say to the blind man? What do you want? It was obvious what the man is blind. You blind, Jesus? You can't see what this man wants? Why are you asking him what he wants? Because he wants the man to engage his will with the will of the Father. It's the Father's will that he healed that blind man. Jesus did his part, but the blind man had to will to be in alignment and agreement with the will of God. I will, I know, as Jesus is the representative of the invisible God, he showed perfectly God's opinion of sickness, and wherever Jesus went, he healed the sick. I'm going to proclaim, I want you healed. My passion now gets encouraged. My passion now gets inflamed. My passion when I'm praying is saying, God, I want them healed. I want them healed, Jesus. I want them healed. And I began to see changes in my prayer life. I began to see prayers being answered radically because I realized I wasn't standing off saying, whatever you want to do. What kind of a battle is that? You imagine a policeman going to the, to the scene of a crime and there's a robber there, and he says, my captain wants you to surrender. My police station does not want you acting this way. By the 36th district, I command you to stop. Don't do that anymore. It's small, but it's a level of engagement. But when you come and you pull out your gun and say, you better drop that right now. I told you to drop it. You now become a full representative of the kingdom of God. Fully engaged, fully responsible for that command and that authority. Because it's his faith. I'm acting in the faith of Jesus. We forget something. He's the head. I'm the body. I'm not the tail, sister. He's the head. <laughs> He's the body. A tail drags. <laughs> He's the head. We're the body. It is by His faith. Listen, this goes all the way back. It's the same Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter how many years. Oh, Jesus, help us get this. It's the same Jesus. It's his faith acting upon the Father to do and to will. We are now his body. So when he wants something done, he needs his hands, that's you. He needs his feet, that's you, to be fully engaged and command what he wants commanded. 
This is the faith we're contending for. He sent them out and they did what he told them to do because they were commissioned by him. Now I have to conclude. I'll close with this 1 John 4, 17. Because as he is, so are we in this world. You need to find that verse. It's at the end of 1 John 4, 17. And, and consider this thought. Consider this thought, please. As he is, or is it as he was? All right, well, let's stop here. What is he right now? Gloriously seated on the throne of heaven. He is the King of kings, Lord of lords, matchless in all his ways, right? Because as he is right now, we are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. As he is, so are we. Now, I'm not going to bow down to your name, right? Your name is not a name above every name. No, 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 no. But we're part of the body that represents the head. But as he is, so are we where? In this world. That's how heaven touches earth, you. That's how the government and authority of God moves in this world, you. You. And we've got to get this contrast in Mark 6. You had a place of people who would not consider who Jesus was. They wouldn't recognize him. They looked at him in one way and God would not move. But the other group, he said, I want you to do what you've seen me do. I want you to say what you've seen me say. Now get out there and do it. And they did. And that's where the church should be. I'm afraid the church is like Nazareth. We've whittled it back to a set of doctrines and formalities. How is this any different than some group that has doctrines and bylaws? How is it any different? God help us. We must be doing and acting as He is right now. Is Jesus Lord over sickness? Is Jesus Lord over disease? Is Jesus Lord over all things of nature and life? Yes, He is. And so we must press into this. Now, I understand, folks, it's easy to preach that, but doing it is hard. Hey, I get it. I laid hands on, on someone sick in intensive care yesterday, praying, I want you healed, I want you healed. I'm waiting for that to manifest. But I'm believing this instead of nothing. Because you can't, uh, you can't believe in nothing. David Wilkerson used to say, deluded, a deluded gospel is no gospel at all. A deluded gospel willfully allows compromise. A deluded gospel refuses to confront sin. A deluded gospel seeks to please man for this, at the sake of a grieving God. A deluded gospel tolerates Jezebel. A deluded gospel makes you feel good even when you won't repent. A deluded gospel is powerless. A deluded gospel is no gospel at all. So we're either going to believe this whole thing or not. Now in the end, Jesus said this to them. If they will not receive, shake the dust off your feet. Now, in Judaism, that was a declaration. It meant, I'm done with you. I've given a witness, and I'm done with you. Paul, Paul does it in Acts 13. He goes to the chief men of the city, Paul and Barnabas. They kick them out of the streets and it says they shook off the dust from their feet against them. Acts 18, it says 
Paul was refused and opposed by them. It says he shook off his garments and he said to them, your blood's on your heads. There's a time where you need to move on. Now, did the gospel come back to Nazareth? It did. Did people go back to Nazareth? It did. But we got to get busy with the kingdom work. You've been witnessing to a certain number of people. You need to move on. That sounds insensitive, Pastor Tim. Give them to God. Let God send somebody else. But go find someone that's ready to get saved. Let's get busy. What are we walking around the same mountain of rejection? Go find someone. The, the harvest is white. It's ripe. Go demonstrate the kingdom. People are refusing the kingdom right in your face. Move on. The church has got to move on. We have got to deliver and go get the people who are hungry, who are ready to be harvested. God will send someone else to the person you shook the dust off of. He'll send someone else, but your time with them is done. And some of you need to hear this. Because some of you have felt depleted, you felt defeated, you can't get anywhere with that person. Would you move on? You've got a gospel to preach. You've got someone to deliver. You've got someone who is hungry to get saved. Move on. Let's go. And who knows, in the chain of events, when that person gets saved, then the other person you were trying to witness to, someone talks to them and they get saved. How many of you have seen that happen? You thought I spent 10 years on this person. They never listened to me. One person walks up and says, do you need Jesus? They go, yeah. What am I, chopped liver? Move on. Move on. Let's preach this gospel that was handed down to us, this faith that we have to contend for. Let's fight, church. I want to tell you, the people who are going to oppose this message are the Christians. The people who are going to oppose you for wanting to lay hands on the sick, the ones who are going to oppose you for believing in the gifts of the Spirit, for speaking in tongues and casting out demons and going into the gutters to save drug addicts and lifting them out and giving a promise of healing and deliverance, the people who will come against you are the Nazarites in Nazareth. The people who believe or thought they had Jesus in their own hometown. But they don't respect him for who he is. They don't know him. There are a number of Christians that got Jesus living in their hometown, but they don't believe what he says. There's the contrast in what I'm talking about today. Let's bow our heads. Father God.